Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to this as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. And I pray that you will find us all of those. Through this program, we are excited to be connecting you to people and stories in and about Israel to give you a window to look through about aspects of life here in Israel that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and comments anytime, and you can always be in touch with us at genesis123.co. And also, please feel free to share this with anybody who you know who will find this of interest. I've been anticipating this conversation for weeks, and I'm so excited to introduce our guest. Um, This comes out of a decades-long personal uh, interest and activism in in the topic we're going to speak about, but also the new book that was just released called Hidden Heroes. The topic is very personal because it's about the historic and modern exodus of the Jewish people from the Soviet Union. It's no less miraculous than the exodus that we read about in the Bible, and there are many similarities, both in terms of the number of Jews who were freed, about 2 million, and over the fact fact that this uh, exodus also took place over about 40 years. One of the differences, however, is that we don't see God's hand as directly in the struggle to release the Jews of the Soviet Union as we did in reading the book of uh, the book of Exodus about the liberation of the Jewish people from from Egypt. However, today we have one of God's hands with us, somebody through whom God was able to act and take action and ultimately see the incredible results that we did. Pam Cohen became an activist on behalf of Soviet Jewry in the early 1970s. She served as co-chair of the Chicago Action for Soviet Jewry, national president of the Union of Councils for Soviet Jewry, and indeed was one of the most visible leaders of the Soviet Jewry movement globally. Her leadership role took her to Uh, the halls of Capitol Hill in the United States, the White House, numerous world capitals, and many trips in and throughout the Soviet Union. Pam was also a personal role model, along with her and her co-chair, Marilyn Tallman, who became a friend and supporter of my own activism. She became so much, she she and uh, her activities made so much of the Soviet Jewry movement possible, giving me and many other students and people at the time, leadership to follow, and an infrastructure within which to work. As the KGB then derided, we became a network of students and housewives. Ultimately, however, it was the sum of that activity of the network of students and housewives and many others that was a key element to the liberation of the Jews of the Soviet Union. Pam, I'm so thrilled to have you here. Um, I feel like it's, a, in a sense, a bit of a family reunion because this is so much a part of who who we are and and were in our respective periods of life. And I'm so excited to be able to share with everyone following today uh, about your new book, Hidden Heroes. And if I don't say it enough, 
it's a must read. So everyone should go out and get a copy. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's such a privilege and pleasure to be here. And it is like a reunion. I mean, your name is uh, is like a hallmark of Chicago acting for Soviet Jewry for what you did. So, and as we were talking earlier, so much of the memories of what you did just are resounding back in my mind. For for that, we'll wait for for me to write my own book. Today, we're going to speak about you and and yours. Uh, But, but let's, let's, rewind and and assume that there's some people who are who are following today who really don't know about the history forget the soviet jewry movement but the struggles that jews faced in the soviet union um you 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 learned about that yourself it wasn't something that you grew up understanding when you and and lenny got married that was not first thing on your on your uh, agenda either can you talk about the, the go ahead yeah, no, but uh, but I but I did know um, I, I'm, you know, a, a history buff, and so even you know growing up, I was very interested in history and very interested in Jewish history, and so I understood and uh, what was going on um, in terms of the forced assimilation of Jews under under um, under Stalin and even earlier, um, the social pressures to assimilate under the, um, the, the Menshevik and the Bolshevik, you know, revolutions, even starting in 1905 and, or before that, the anti-Semitism of the, of the czars. So I, and then which climaxed, of course, with Stalin and the purge trials, the purges and the show trials and the um, the uh, the effort, the very successful effort to really remove all vestiges of Jewish life in the Soviet Union. And right. It, it's if if you know it's hard. I I I'm going to take a minute to just put put some context around this for your listeners. Please. And viewers, and that is that today it's really hard for us to imagine what the Soviet Union was. Um, the closest that we can picture is what what today what North Korea looks like. Um, but if you pictured what uh, what Churchill called the Iron Curtain, it was a uh, completely isolated. Um, pretty much subcontinent that ran from almost Japan through the Baltic nations. And in that, uh, with, with tremendous uh, millions of, of KGB border guards uh, surrounding the country so that there was no um, liquidity to move from border to border, but not only geographically, but there was no phone call t- contact. Right. There was no mail contact. KGB literally monitored all forms of communication with the West. And so the result was that the Jews that were in these um, 11, I think it was a 12 time zones running from Vladivostok to through, you know, to Western Europe were really frozen in um, without any contact to the rest of the world, to Jewry, uh, and certainly knew nothing even about the birth of Israel. And after generations, really, of forced assimilation, um, they 
there was um, no, there was no really self feeling of self identity, but you have to understand that in those years, there was no bookstores, right? Or no Hebrew teachers. No one knew what Hebrew language was really. Um, it, it had become in a sense, Judenrein, uh culturally. Culture, right. Jews were, were an accepted nationality, one of over a hundred nationalities of that were listed as uh, as your ethnicity, if you will, but not as a religion. You could, there was no there was no religious practice, and and, and ultimately, and and it's well brought out in your book and a lot of the documentation. Uh, Jews were persecuted for for practicing Judaism, teaching Judaism, Jewish culture, uh, Hebrew language, and, uh, and and yet there were what three million or so Jews. Well, they, we thought there were three to five in the million Jews in the years that we were working up until like uh, 2000 um, and uh, 1996 or 2000, actually. And now we found that there were, you know, an incredible number more because during those years, Jews had internalized the anti-Semitism and it involved in a form of Jewish self-hatred. Wow. And there was a reluctance for Jews to write Yivri on their line five of their internal passport. So there were Jews that were that were um, after after the fall of the Soviet Union that were starting to identify as Jews um, that hadn't you know in generations previously. So that the numbers were much more inflated than we ever thought. Correct. Good point. So you so you you gave a great overview as to the history of, of Jews. And, and, and I think it's just kind of safe to sum up. I had relatives who came from Belarus. Um, anyone who studies a little bit of Jewish history in the last 100, 150 years can't avoid the fact that Jews were discriminated against radically under the czars and, and in, in early communism and certainly under, uh, under uh, Stalin. And, and that stuck and it just became part of Soviet Jewish life. And as I recall in reading your book, you kind of you speak a little bit about your own awakening to this and wanting to do something. Reading an article, if I remember correctly, you wrote, if I remember you wrote in the Jewish Exponent, and looking for other people to get involved with. Talk about that. Talk about how you had that, how it clicked with you, and why. Okay, so I grew up at a time. Um, like in the late 50s and the early 60s, were the first books on the Holocaust and the information on this Holocaust started really reaching us in the States. And I could not, as a teenager, I could not, I could not understand how American Jews Americans in general, but American Jews let one million Jewish children go up the smokestacks of Europe. Right. I I couldn't I I I couldn't find a place for that. And when I heard, when I learned that Jews were being arrested in the Soviet Union for being Jewish, um something inside of me just rebelled and said, not on my watch. No. And I started seeking, as you said, I started seeking out information, found out that Jews were being arrested because they wanted to identify as Jews and they wanted to go to Israel. 
um, and that a small group of them had determined since there was absolutely a silent a blockade of information out of the Soviet Union, they decided after trying to apply legally through the government for many years, seeing no chance of immigrating, they decided to do something that would be throwing a um, a flashpoint uh, um, into the black sky and signaling to the West that there were millions of Jews in the Soviet Union that wanted to leave. And what they decided to try to do was to take a plane, an unmanned plane, um, from Leningrad to Sweden. Um, but of course, there were KGB you know, aware of the of the plot from the right. beginning, and they were all arrested before they even got on the tarmac. Correct. Um, and there were two people were given the death sentence. The rest were given many years of um, of forced prison and labor camp. Um, and that was the beginning of the movement. People in, in the in the West. Um, and by the way, it wasn't just Jews um, that were responding to this. Right. I, it's very important to know, I think, that especially in the in the scientific community, uh, um, the, the, there were many people who had known about the works of Sakharov and who were involved in 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 some of the scientific um, work that was trying to that 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 the cultural. Uh, context that it did exist between the Soviet Union and the scientists, because the, the Soviets were always interested in that. They also took to the streets and to protest these arrests, right. and the movement was more or less born. You know, I want to jump back for something that you said that for you and I doesn't really ring, doesn't really um, ra- raise any flags. But someone just heard you say that someone had to apply to leave the Soviet Union and did a double take and then a triple take and a quadruple take and said, what? Because forget the fact that today in 2021, no such thing exists. No one can imagine that except for perhaps North Korea, right? Or or there are other closed societies, but to, to imagine that, that in order to, in order to think about actualizing a dream to live elsewhere, Israel or anywhere else, one had to make a formal application to a communist controlled regime that would then take consequences on you in, 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 throughout the rest of your life and your family's life. And I'm going to read, leave what those consequences are for people to read your book, but, but it's astounding to rewind. And when you were something you said a few minutes ago also also made me realize even decades later how aware and involved I was yet reading your book made it so much more vivid because it's astounding today to think that human beings and certainly Jews lived in that situation and and, and as I did in my intro that this is not just a biblical story I'm saying in quotes that we read about and 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 we involve in our daily lives but it's actually a piece of the history of the modern history of the people, Jewish people. It's astounding. You're um, absolutely right. It, you know, I, I something you said, um, I think trickle triggers a, a thought that I think should be realized uh, and, and heard is that the Soviet Union, the Kremlin, 
um, really did not allow immigration. But the only immigration that they would tolerate uh, yeah. is immigration to Israel. Right. And Israel was conce- was considered in the Soviet Union for many reasons an anti uh, an anti Soviet state. Now, if you go back to even like say uh, the birth of Israel or 1948 and 1967, at that particular time, the Kremlin was providing. Um, um, ammunition was arming the Arab states. Correct. Israel was an enemy state to the Soviet Correct. Union. And so if you were applying to the uh, for immigration and you had to apply, it was considered anti-Soviet. It was right. a, a threat to the Soviet Union that you were applying to go to the land of Israel. Excellent. And, and what and what was required, there was like a 17-step process, including getting permission for your parents. Now, if your parents, by any chance, had a, jo- a job that was a, a, in a university, or it was uh, if you were they were a scientist or a member of the Communist Party, it th- immediately threatened the entire family. Yes. Because if you apply to immigrate, your parents would lose their job. People around you would lose their jobs. You no longer had an income. It was, a, as you said, it was a vicious circle. Once right. you made that application, you were, you were pariahs. You lost your complete identity. You lost your identity and you lost your job. And as you mentioned, no income. And then the Soviets had a law that if you didn't have a job and an income, then they, they would be arrest you and, and, and try you for the crime of parasitism. Right. An endless cycle. And you do such a great job bringing all of that out. One of the things, however, that I really wanted to, it, it struck me because you wrote this at the beginning of the book, but it also resonates with me personally. You wrote how you had a very hard time initially writing the book in the first person. Can you talk about because I, I know you, you're 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 you know you're, you're you're just modest Pam Cohen who took on a Herculean role, but you're still just modest Pam Cohen. Why did that? What? Why was that so difficult to write in the first person initially? And how did you overcome that? Jonathan, I, I, there were many people who were involved in the grassroots movement before I had gotten involved. I mean, they were, and they were greats, and they were mostly women. I mean, there were a few men, but I have to say there were mostly women who were, um, obsessed with the movement who were about, I would say maybe a decade or 15 years older than I was. I, when I came on board, I was a very young mother. I had no experience. I was terrified of speaking in public. I don't like public. The, the, I don't like being in the public limelight. Um, I, I was I was obsessed also in trying to save my people and it forced me to do things that I would never have wanted to do for myself. Yeah. But when it came to writing, I I couldn't write about myself when I was standing on the shoulders of people like Lynn Singer wow. and and 
and and and other really Irene Manikovsky who really made the Sharansky case. I mean, it was Irene that really made his name and made him a a, a cause celebrity in the United States and in the world. And I was standing on their shoulders and it wasn't until after they passed away. um, I would say about 10 years ago that I looked around and there was, I was the last man standing. Um, I was the last person really who was face to face with Soviet Jews working in a partnership position with people inside the Soviet Union who could write about the movement from a uh, firsthand experience and mirror, be a mirror to their activity. Um, There are other people who might do research and might write as journalists and might interview people. But I was the only one that could do a behind the scene, last one who could do a a, a person to person behind the scenes um, view of, of what was going on there. And, and, I will, there won't be any more that can do that. I really am a last man standing. And that's why I, I, I did it. And that was what was so hard for me to do. And when I wrote, when I finally, I got some advice from another writer who said, you write in the collective eye. Stop thinking uh, yes. that as you. It's the collective eye. And that was the only way I could do it. I, I that That was encouraging to me and reminded me of my own struggles in 1988 when I was encouraged to write up my own story. And then of course there were most Jews were still stuck in the Soviet union. And I, I wrote and I wrote in longhand and I still have with me 25 legal pads written in longhand, but in the third person, because I didn't want it to be about me. I wanted it to be about the movement and inspiring other people to take action. And I felt it was immodest at the time. And, and, and I, I had already realized the 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 royal eye, if you will, or or, or the, the 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 eye for all of us, as you said. Um, but it's still awkward, and 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 I'm so glad that you. It, it probably would have been just as easy, and you could have written the book the same way without including that. But I'm glad you did, and I'm glad that those who are following now get to he- get to understand where you're coming from. Yeah, I, it's a very important point because. It's not about me. It's right. about the power of all of us, the power of any one of us. I think one of the biggest things that impressed me with the people inside the Soviet Union was the fact that they were able to exert their moral courage yes. in facing whatever they did. And it was a question of morality and courage. Right. And I think that that is how it affected me that I needed the courage to be able to 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 do what I felt was morally correct, even though I didn't want to be in the public eye. Um, it kind of rubbed off of me. And I think that that's the message for the movement for all of us, that each of us, no matter how you know uncomfortable we may be, or we might be, you know, not confident enough, or we might feel that we're overstepping our bounds, we all have responsibility. And 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 we can actualize that responsibility that we have to, and we can make a difference. And and uh, you won't say this, but I will. It's very clear that God was working through you, and 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 putting you in the position to do things that even you weren't comfortable with doing yourself, but you did in a in in a Herculean way. 
Look, I, I will say this. I mean, I'm, I'm, I am not uncomfortable at all about saying this. I did not realize this when I was going through this process, but things happened to me and from the very beginning um, that were more or less like taps on the shoulder that I was (laughs) unaware of, but I was really led from one person to another. Like I have been introduced to the greatest people I think that were in my generation and the previous generation. I never was in contact with any kind of bad people, just only inspiringly good people. And I'll tell you, at the end of it, when I was writing the book, I turned around and I was, you know, thinking about a conclusion and looking at the movement from um, retrospectively, I saw that it was, this is a very Jewish perspective, um, but I really came to believe that just as the Jewish disunity um, destroyed the temple, the, yeah. the second temple. I am convinced, I am absolutely convinced that the Jewish unity between Jews in America, the West, and in the Soviet Union created a power, a, a, a unity that was so great that it 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 was cosmic. Yes. And that cosmic broke down, released, it was inconceivable. This was the most successful rescue of Jews in history. I mean, the largest in history. We've had, you know, 2,000 years of catastrophe right. and 2,000 years of whether, you know, whether it was the Cossacks or whether it was Spain or whether wherever it's been, we have not been able to, to, to create this kind of force that could liberate so many and save so many lives. And, and, in, and, it, and in, in its wake, it brought down this, the, 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 the Kremlin itself. I mean, the, uh, some people uh, say, you know, you have to be careful when you say that, but I, I, I am cautious. And what I mean by that is that our determination to reach out to our people in Russia, to reach out to our refuseniks by tourist, by letter, by telephone, by messenger call. I mean, that created a little tiny chink in the Kremlin domes um, that ultimately ultimately brought it down. Absolutely. Hundred percent. There's no question. Um, you, you and you're right about the the, the the significance of the freeing of the Jews, the Jewish people. And I, I would just say no more significant since the biblical exodus, um, and w- which we still celebrate today. And and for another conversation, how how which another reason why your book is so important is because we don't yet have a way to acknowledge the decades long struggle to free the Jews of the Soviet Union. And your book, your book is, is, a, is a, an essential foundation of that, uh, of, of reenacting it. Every year as Jews, we reenact the exodus from Egypt during our Passover Seder. And during our daily and, and Shabbat prayers, we remind ourselves that it was God who freed us. Um, we don't have that for, for, for this historic movement that was made up of 
leaders like you and and people who who followed in your wake uh, like myself. So it's terribly significant. Um, but I want to just add, and this because we're, we're building bridges here between Jews and Christians. I always find that that we speak about it as a Jewish movement. It was a movement to free the Jews of the Soviet Union, and certainly to a degree, infused human rights into those non-Jews who were being persecuted in the Soviet Union. But there were many Christians who played a, a significant role. You mentioned um, scientists. Uh, yes, I want to talk about, uh, there was a congressman in, in, the, in the Boston um, who was a Catholic priest, and he was a congressman, and he was an articulate fo- spokesman for right. Soviet Jewry. I'll tell you something. Um, this, this, this movement um, f- from our perspective in, in the United States, our grassroots movement saw the Jewish movement as a particular part of a broad human rights movement. Correct. It was particular, in fact, because we were working for the Jewish movement. But within the Jewish movement in the Soviet Union, there were Jews like Sharansky who were working with dissidents like Andrei Sakharov. And who was not Jewish, who was not Jewish and who was Russian. And in 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 my own experience, um, after uh, starting around 1990, maybe 1992, um, we held conferences in the Soviet Union on human rights with Russian non-Jewish Russian. I I don't know how they would indent religiously identified themselves, but they loved Timofeo from Amnesty International at that time. Um, and the other groups that we were working with were not, were not Jewish. And there was a, 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 there was a sympathetic liaison that where we worked together. Um, and it was, it was not, it was in the Soviet Union. It was outside the Soviet Union. My congressman, John Porter at the time or earlier, um, was a, a, uh, uh, I think he was Protestant. He, 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 his reaction when somebody was arrested was, couldn't have been more authentic than, than mine. So we were working with Republicans, right? Democrats, Christians, uh, Christian scientists. We were working with psychiatrists on, who, were, who were monitoring psychiatric abuse. We were Sister Anne Gillen was Good, from the International that. Task Force. Uh, was an art, was an articulate spokesman for Soviet Jewry, and petitioned the Soviet Union to um, allow her to take Eden Nudel's place in exile. Oh yeah, right. Eden Nudel was a refusenik that was um, arrested and sent into Siberia for finally hanging a sign. Let me go to Israel on her in her apartment. And Sister Ann Gillen petitioned the Soviet Union to to let her take her place. Jane Fonda was uh, it, it. So this movement was it was acknowledged as a Jewish movement, but it was part of the human rights movement. And people worked together, and there was a unity, and there was a 
a mutual respect for every piece of it that people could um, could provide. Yeah. Everyone did their thing. Am I remembering correctly, Pam? I wish I had thought about it to prepare for this conversation. That even pre-movement, if you will, Martin Luther King spoke out yes. on behalf, right? And yes, and there's nothing that he did that wasn't in the context of being a religious Christian. Correct. Correct. You write Correct. about in the book, Pam, a group of Christians in Finland, and you're visiting them, and it, it's all it, it, it was a lot of suspense and going to your your visit and being driven out to the remote boondocks of uh, of, of uh, suburban uh, way outside of Finland. Talk, talk about the group and why. What was remarkable about oh working with gosh. them and as Christians specifically? It was. It, it was. Uh... It, it, you could make a movie out of this one. <laughs> um, there were a group of uh, Christian Finns um, working out of Helsinki. Um, and of course, this was at the time when the Soviets were trying to um, damp down any contact between Westerners and refusiks followed them and harassed them. And, and after Afghanistan, there wasn't much tourism. If Afghanistan, we have to invasion, the Soviet after, sorry, and, and the Soviet invaded Afghanistan in um, 1980. 80. And it was, uh, it became an international um, problem between the United States and, and the Soviet Union. And they cracked down, and the Soviets cracked down on American tourists, and tourists were also afraid to go to the Soviet Union. Um, it was a time where there was like the clock was ticking on the atomic uh, clock, the, the hand on the atomic clock was moving. Um, and a group of righteous Christians from Helsinki, um, dressed as laborers, uh, working on a hotel in in Leningrad, others dressed, uh, others came in as apparently day laborers just to, to drink because there was so much vodka in, in oh. uh, St. Petersburg and Leningrad. Um, and they came and they made contact surrep- surreptitiously with a group of refuseniks in Leningrad. By the way, let me interject just a minute. We've used the word refuseniks a few times. For those who don't know, that's that we talked about the requirement to apply to leave when Jews were rejected, they were refused. And therefore the, the, the new word that was created then was became refusenik. So when we're referring to that, we're referring to people who, who were rejected by the Soviet union and therefore subject to all the internal punishment and discrimination. Thank you for that. Yes. (laughs) Um, So they, they were traveling to make contact with refuse with with the Leningrad group of activists, refusenik activists. And when one of them left, got permission to leave and went to Israel, they contacted me and they wanted me to be involved with these Christian Finns. And little by little, we made contact with them. Um, actually, I was here at a meeting in Jerusalem uh, for the union and one of these former refuseniks from Leningrad oh, right. said, I, I, you're going to meet, you've got to meet them now. 
And we flew from Jerusalem to Amsterdam. And we met these two of the leaders of the group. And we worked out a contract between us um, that we would send them money um, and cameras and film and we would fund, we, we really funded their trips to the Soviet Union, and they would bring out the information to us. Um, and we would share information between Helsinki, our group in Jerusalem, who had left uh, Leningrad, um, and Marilyn and myself in Chicago. So we had a three-way point of contact. Um, and they urged us to come for a long time to Helsinki to see what they were doing. And so Marilyn and I picked up one day. We didn't tell anybody at our office. No one knew where we were going because these Christian Finns were in danger themselves. I mean, um, Finland was free, but there was a tremendous amount of KGB surveillance and one of the Christian Finns' brother was with the foreign ministry. Oh, wow. He was ter- she was terrified that there would be a problem if they found out what he, her sister was doing. Yeah. So we were extremely cautious. So no one knew where we were going. And we flew to Helsinki. And then very, we were given very careful instructions what to do um from the helsinki hotel we were supposed to call maya and i started calling maya and late in the afternoon we arrived there was no answer and marilyn and i knew nobody else in helsinki and there was no internet there was no internet (laughs) there was nothing we could do we just waited waited until she finally answered the phone And then very succinctly, she gave us instructions to take a certain train at a certain time to Riyamaki and get off the train. And we we did, on the way to Riyamaki, you were driving, you were in a train. You have to understand, these are two women. I was in my mid-40s with three little kids at home and Marilyn was uh, about 20 years older than I am, but we were in this train in the middle of a birch forest going north, had no (laughs) idea where we were, just no one knew where we were. And we got off the train at the stop and there were two cars, Christian Finns greeting us at the train station pushed us into cars, drove us way, way into the forest, but immediately started chatting with us. How's, how's Sasha? How did you get any news about Volodya? It was like an extension of my office in Chicago. They knew every person. Tanya, what about Tanya? Where is Tanya? Do you have you heard from Tanya Sunshine? It was unbelievable. They knew everything. They knew every name. They knew every update. Things that we had missed from the time we left to Chicago to the international flight landing. You know, a day later in Riyamaki, they had filled up with filled us with all the information. Well, then they drove us 
they drove us into the forest to an encampment. And the first thing they did was to show us what they had prepared. Convinced that the prophecy in Jeremiah would be fulfilled, that the Jews would be freed from the north, they had built, I have the chills, way stations, wooden encampments, Jonathan, filled with blankets, cots, medication, Everything that you could see that I still have the chills refugees would need. It's it's extraordinary. And and you saw something that you didn't see in Chicago or Boston or or anywhere else because they were acting out of complete biblical faith. It was simply unbelievable. And and, And many others like that. I have a good friend who who obviously will I'll make sure he watches this. Um, I, I was shocked learning about what he did. Pastor George Morrison, who was a pastor in uh, Denver, I think, I think at the time, and he told me how they would write letters all the time, and they actually followed up. You know, when we wrote letters, and for, well, you know, but for people who don't know, when you would write a letter, you would send it with a, you would send it registered mail with a little pink card that was attached, requesting a return receipt. That, and more often than not, at least as far as my correspondence, the letters never got through. I never mistakenly never really spent time following up because the Soviets, I think, were were incumbent upon them to pay something like four or five times as much money for the uh, over the value of the postage if they didn't deliver the letter. And and Pastor George said to me once, "Yeah, we used to make good money that way because they they always followed up." And that, by the way, really relating to little chinks in the in the fortress the iron curtain those little things that were done by jews and christians all added up to the sum of an historic moment that that we that we played to 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 a certain degree and it's and 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 because of who i am and doing what i'm doing it's just so important to acknowledge that it wasn't just a movement of jewish housewives and students but but no short number of Christians. And I'm so glad you reminded us about um, about the, the, the her, heroic offer to take Ida Nudel's place in in, uh, in Siberia. Just, and, and so many stories like that. Uh, I, I seem to remember you, you interacted with President Reagan and Bush and, and you wrote uh, somewhat extensively and I think a little bit more intimately about Secretary of State Schultz. Um, you can't write a story about the, the Jews of the Soviet Union without writing about Senator, the late Senator, uh, Senator uh, Henry Scoop yes. Jackson from Washington, who came from a Christian home. Uh, and and I'm wondering, does anything else stand out working with non-Jews in general, but Christians in specific? That, that, that preparation for Jeremiah is really resounding, but that, that motivated them? You know, I'm... I don't know, really. I mean, I never really explored. You know, it's a it's a very funny thing. I, um, I never really explored their the motivations. I never really saw us as being distinct. I, I wanted I want to tell you one thing. I, I this may sound strange to you, um, and and maybe even to the audience, um, your listeners, but I. I once um, 
we once held a meeting um, in Central Asia. Um, Jews, after the um, immigration had more or less opened in Russia and the Soviet Union collapsed, we found that there were a tremendous amount of anti-Semitic violence in the Soviet Asian republics. And so we went there and we were asked to host a conference there. Um, And it turned out that most of the Jews who were asked, who wanted, we wanted to be at this conference um, were put under house arrest um, in, in some of the republics and never made it there. The people who wound up coming were Muslim human rights activists. Wow. Okay. That's significant. And I was the only woman, one of the only women who were speaking at this meeting. And we were monitoring the house arrests and we were giving information back to the State Department. And while we were, and while we were doing all this, uh, the meeting, which was ho- ho- co-hosted by the president of um, Kyrgyzstan, um, the meeting with proceeding was going on. And I, I looked around and I saw, and it, there was simultaneous translation. And I saw, you know, sitting under headsets, three, four hundred Muslim men. And I said to them, what is a Jewish woman who is, believes in the Torah and believes in, um, is committed to their, her own faith? What is she doing in a meeting speaking to Muslim men about human rights? And I talked about the brotherhood that we are related that we are we are all um the children of god right and that makes us brothers and i spoke about the the i may not agree with somebody else's way of looking at the world they don't need my they don't need me to verify and um give my approval to the way somebody else looks at the world, the way they look at their religion. But I will, and I told them there, I will fight for their right to have, to, to believe what they want to believe. And that's what we've only asked for ourselves. And we have to project that across the board to all people. I want you to know, Jonathan, I have never ever spoken in a public forum and had such a wildly enthusiastic response. The men jumped up from their seats. They were clapping. They were singing. They were dancing me out of the room. So, you know, there is there is something we are connected. Um, and we all have the same, you know, we were all given these inalienable rights. Yes. Um, and we should treat them as they are inalienable and that they are God-given. And that we re- we're responsible for each other to to make sure that 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 each one is able to fulfill what 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 their what I call their moral have their moral um, uh, uh, individual um, way of looking at 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 their at their world. Right, beautiful. I, I, I imagine I remember that from the book, 
and I, I got a sense that that was yeah, that was a little nerve wracking and and uneasy to be in that scenario. But just as you're relating it now, uh, it, it occurs to me that you know in the in the environment you're in Central Asia in the early 1990s where there's still an abject lack of human and religious freedom, and you're there affirming things on their behalf. That must have been tremendously uplifting to them. And I guess you saw the, the response um, positively. Let me, uh, let me, there, there's so much we could talk about the book and there's one particular chapter I want to get into, but we've, we've mentioned our good friend, Marilyn Tallman a couple of times. Um, I get teary. I just thinking about her because I miss her. She's so present in my life and still, and I was a kid in my twenties, um, Marilyn was was like another mother to me. She invested in me. She believed in the crazy things that I was intending to do as a student activist at the time. But you had the privilege of working with her hand in hand and traveling to Helsinki and all these other places. I, I think it would be remiss as as friends of Marilyn and, and as somebody, um, as people who were involved in, in different degrees in the movement with her, not to talk about her. So can you just share for people who never even heard her name, what was so, and and I'm not going to let you do it for half an hour, but, but Marilyn was tremendous. Why? First of all, I also loved her and I have to say, I love you for loving her too. (laughs) She was, she, she had a, um, an extravagantly uh, endowed um, ability to do many, many things. She was funny. She was very, very bright. Um, she started off her life as um, with working to raise money f- um, for um, for the Israeli uh, Air Force from when they were buying planes from Czechoslovakia in 1948. Then she went on to bring um, student survivors, students uh, from the Holocaust um, to America on student visas. And she wound up bringing um, um, several very, very well-known people to America who were students on these visas working with Abe Sacker. Um, and then she developed, she became a speaker for the, um, the, uh, I, I guess you would call it the UJA, the U- Jewish United Fund, a big national Jewish, uh, right. relief organization, fundraising organization. And she spoke throughout the country. She was on the, and then she developed a seven year curriculum on Jewish history. And I was her student. And I was a student at the age of maybe, I probably was like 32 years old when I was studying with her. And she was such an engaging teacher. She, she would give papers on, um, on various aspects of Jewish history and turn it into, you know, vivid color. Um, and then she got, she involved herself in the Soviet Jewry movement. She would also travel with her husband, Teddy, to various countries, even, even in the sixties. And she would invariably knock on the front, the door of, uh, 
say Sigmund Freud, <laughs> knock on the door, and Franz Kafka, knock on the door. Um, actually, the Lev Bronstein, who was Trotsky, knock on the door of their family and say with her notebook, I'm Marilyn Tallman, and I'm a teacher of Jewish history. Can I interview you, wow. your daughter, your grandchild, whoever it was? She was, uh, she was, she was a firecracker. She was, and she was very, very, she had a great sense of humor. Um, and she was, uh, she was, um, indefatigable, but she could read people. She called a spade a spade. Um, she, she was everything you said she was, and she was, she was my mentor. Yeah. 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 So it's extraordinary. And, you know, it's just something you just said that I, I didn't know this about her, but the fact that she could read people makes it all the more meaningful that she took the time and effort to invest in me because that, that, yes. well, <laughs> yes, but, but, yeah. but when, when, and all of us, but the fact, you know, I could have just been another student, but, but she, I, wow. I, the, the, you, the, I guess the fact that she really saw something in me and that I wasn't just a, Fly by she, night. No, no. She knew. She wow. she saw people. Wow. That's she amazing. Saw, yeah. Well, she's mentioned in the book and and, and she, she would never me. have let you go. You know, once you once she got your teeth, your her teeth and you she, you yeah. were hers. Well, I I I I will never let her go. And I'm and I'm if, if if only for this little bit to reminisce about her. Because again, as the book is called Hidden Heroes, she's one of them. And, um, and and I don't want to neglect that. And there are many others and people have to buy the book and read it. One of the most gripping chapters for me was a chapter called The Dark Years, 1984 to 86. Um, and it resonated because that's when I made my first trip as a 20-year-old student alone to the Soviet Union. And, I, and I, it's astounding that my, I'm, I'm never glad that my parents aren't alive, but I'm surely glad that they never read your book when I was a 20 year old student, because they had, had they read that chapter and what was going on in those years, they never would have let me go. And it's astounding now as the parent of not just a 20 year old, but a couple of older and younger to, to imagine what was going through their minds at the time. But decades later, reading the book now, it, it gave me chills. It made me nervous for myself, the 20 year old student then. And more kind of, I don't know, miraculous might be overdramatic, but more astounding that I went in in 1985 and did what I did alone as a 20-year-old student. What was so difficult then, 1985, 84 to 86? Why why did you especially mark that out and call those the dark years? Well, they had, I mentioned Afghanistan in 1980. Right. Um, and so after Afghanistan, they no longer, the Soviets really um, no longer wanted to make it appear that they cared about what the State Department and what the United States thought about them. I mean, there was always this bilateral tension between Russia and the and America. And if Russia, if the Soviet Union wanted something like grain sales or 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 uh, any kind of economic benefits, they they at least kept tried to keep two um, uh, two things going. What what it looked like to America that their their public policy and their internal policy. 
But after Afghanistan, they no longer cared about what the influencing the United States. Great point. And so they were free to do whatever they wanted. And they crushed. I mean, they started in the 70s, early, a little earlier, by crushing the dissident movement, uh, the, the non-Jewish dissident movement, putting away, exiling, um, you know, some of the biggest names in the human rights movement. And then they went after the Jewish movement. And they started arresting people in in doing in Moscow, Leningrad, uh, Vilnius, Riga. It was conducting massive house searches in many cities, um, cracking down on Hebrew teachers, planting drugs in Hebrew teachers' apartments, and then uh, arresting them and exiling them. Yuli Edelstein. Uh, who was uh, head of the Knesset here, was a Hebrew teacher who was arrested on the fabricated grounds after they planted hashish um, in his parents' apartment. Um, And there was just massive rest. But at the same time, there was also a very coordinated um, media, anti-Semitic media campaign, which, uh, which not only spoke about Jews in general, but actually showed pictures of refuseniks, people who were Jews who were refused permission to leave um, on the television and in the in the Leningradskaya Pravda, their newspapers, and they were pointing out people as if to say, "You can, you know, go ahead. You, they're, they're, you know, do whatever you want to do," right. and they. They just, it was just a tremendous crackdown. Right. That's a good historical context. And I, in fact, was speaking to my wife about this yesterday. If I remember correctly, up until uh, 1989, 90, um, the largest number of Jews to get out in any one year, if I remember correctly, was 1979, right? And about 52,000, if I remember correctly, from context. And that, and so it's fascinating because maybe had Afghanistan not happened, that could have continued in 1980, 81, 82. But instead, because of Afghanistan, the Soviets basically closed the, the, the tap and no one was getting out. Yet in 1979, because comparatively so many Jews were able to get out, many more that many more people applied to leave, became refuseniks, and now were thrown into this black hole of of existing and and that's a great context of uh of of why those were were in fact the dark years but but i have to say even though i i i did it and it was decades ago it made me nervous for myself reading the book uh that i uh, miraculous that i was able to get away with what i what i did um but first people write read your book and then maybe one day i'll i'll do mine um Looking back, Pam, it's been 50 years. It's pretty extraordinary, right? What would you have done differently? Wow. You know... It's a very, very good question. I mean, 
I, as I, I raised the issue in the book that um, once the Soviet Union started to break apart um, and the um, captive nations like Lithuania and the Baltics, uh, Ukraine, and started becoming independent countries, um, we, meaning the Union of Councils, started working with the emerging nations, these emerging countries, to try to um, get an assurance that they would hold back the anti-Semitism and to allow immigration. And we were accused at the time by other organizations of trying to perpetuate our mandate because the immigration had basically opened and that we were changing the goalpost. Um, and I, I remember, I mean, I, I met with Lekoletsa, I met with uh, the president of Lithuania, Lance Burgess, um, to, to press these itch, issues. Um, I don't know if it was, it, 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 if, if it was for naught. Um, Although I just saw that today, I just read that um, Ukraine has made anti-Semitism illegal. Oh, wow! So um, maybe it, it, it maybe you know it. At the time, it was the right. It, we believed it was the right thing to do. Um, you know, maybe in retrospect, I'm I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. Like at the time, that felt like that was what the Jews in those countries wanted us to do. Yes. Um, look, I mean, I, it wasn't that I. It wasn't that I was so smart. I just want to make it very clear, Jonathan, <laughs> and I want you to and all understand this. It wasn't that I was so smart, but in Chicago, I had this this Marilyn Talbin. <laughs> and nationally, I had a director who, um, Micah Naftalin, and it also bears, I want to just say a few words about Micah. Um, Micah came from a background of, uh, of, a, of a family that was trying to f- fight the Roosevelt policy on um, prohibiting immigration from uh, Europe during the Holocaust. Right. Jewish immigration to the U.S. Um, and he was very involved with both Elie Wiesel and the Holocaust Museum. And he also had worked, uh, he was a lawyer, he had worked at a congressional office, and he was another extraordinarily gifted, gifted mind with an incredibly compassionate heart. He was a very big, imposing man. Um, who even who traveled with me to the Soviet Union after while he was battling um, cancer. And he had traveled with me to uh, previously and right after his last bout of of chemo, we went to the Soviet Union and he was about 40 pounds, 50 pounds lighter and bald without eyebrows. And I want to tell you the people that the, the Soviet authorities that we met from the central committee, a big 
So they were so impressed with him. They thought he was the strongest man wow. that they ever met. Wow. He, 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 he was, re- people respected him from every walk of life. These people, and, and I, um, I had people around me who could argue with me and could prove me wrong. I wanted the best argument on policy to win. I wanted, I wasn't invested in having any right answers. I I relied on um, their ability to confront an issue and help me sort it out. And so I, 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 I had a lot of guidance and plus you have to understand that I, uh, as the president of the Union of Councils, I saw that people who were making policy were the refuseniks in the Soviet Union. They were the ones that I was accountable to, yeah. I was responsible to, and for. And so I wasn't making decisions in my own little isolated world. And so, thank God, it, it, when it came to the union, you know, I really can't say there were any anything that I could look back at. There were there were meetings that I didn't have. I would have liked to have met those people. Yes. Um, I, I, but I can't say that there was. Thank God. Great. Well, it's a it's it's a really great answer because because you I didn't see it in the book, and it, it was such a historic moment period that it'd be very easy to go and play Monday morning quarterback and say, Oh, if I had only done this or if I had or individual meetings, but, but I, I think that you, that you sum that up um, really well. I want to, the, the conversation I think can go on for hours, if not days, but I just like to sum up because you, we, we just got, as I introduced you as being as, as immodest as you are, you just gave us a window into that. But let's talk about you personally for a minute. You speak in, uh, several times throughout the book about how your activism and involvement was a, was a, uh, a key pillar to the discovery and affirmation of your own faith. Can you talk about that? Be happy to. Um, I, I, I grew up in um, with three uh, grandparents from my, I only had three, one, my grandfather died when he, my mother was very young, but I grew up with, uh, surrounded by parent, grandparents from, that came from Eastern Europe. Um, I was a, my mother was very identified. My father was, my father was believed in God and would not tolerate any discussion when I went to college that there was, there, there was no God. It was, that was, that was intolerable for him. Um, But we weren't, we weren't what you, what today is observant, considered observant. We weren't following the mitzvot, the commandments. Um, And I went to, when the first time I went to Moscow in 1978, um, my husband Lenny and I had Shabbos at a Moscow refuseniks apartment. And I saw, I had an image as she lit candles, which I'd like to share. Yes, please. I saw, I say, it was just an image. I saw the world in rotation, the the earth rotating from Jerusalem west 
And I saw lights, candles going on, Shabbos candles going on, lighting in Jerusalem, Athens, Moscow, Riga, London, Spain, New York. I saw how it must be in in heaven to see Jews lighting Shabbos candles all over the world. Wow. And I, it developed, I had this longing, something I just, I wanted to be a part of this, what was considered, what I considered to be the great treasure chest that didn't get passed down as my grandparents and grandparents were leaving Europe. Uh, in the end of this, you know, century, um, in the 1800s. Um, and I met people in, in Russia who were ready to go to prison and, and suffering to, to regain their identity. And little by little, my husband and I, Lenny, um, and I started to appropriate that which was ours and it it has been the greatest gift. I, 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 there isn't a Friday night that when my husband makes kiddish that I do not say thank you, God, thank you, thank you, thank you. Absolutely, that. Thank you for sharing that. It was it, it is extraordinary. And also, you mentioned Lenny a lot through the book. Um, as I was reading those things, and and also not growing up in a religiously observant home, but my involvement of, in the Soviet Jewry movement was a big a big uh, trigger in me reclaiming what was ours uh, and passing passing it along. I love how you had that vision of the candles on Shabbat being lit all, be, as if being viewed from heaven. That's extraordinary. Um, but I also just on a very human level, I don't know how, you know, at what point this began, but you and Lenny already you're raising three kids, you're married, well, you know, a, a good enough period of time. The fact that you went through that together also speaks um, miles to, to you as individuals and you as a couple. And I took that away from the book as well. Yeah, I mean, when we're talking about great people, we talked about Marilyn and we talked about Micah. Lenny Cohn is, uh, <laughs> is a really uh, unbelievable. He uh, married this very quiet <laughs> girl who was 21 years old on her 21st birthday and then wound up with this kind of tiger that wouldn't let go. Um, and so, and he stuck with me. And I, and the truth is, is that, you know, I really believe this is that I never, ever could have done anything without him. You know, you, you, you talk about um, when the this eighties, the fear of the, how you felt in the eighties. What, 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 when I finally got my second visa to Russia, I, I couldn't get in for a long period of time. Um, I was literally standing. There had already been articles about me in Pravda in the Soviet Union as an anti, you know, anti, uh, Soviet, uh, um, dangerous person who was conducting all kinds of illegal things in the Soviet Union. And I remember, you know, the eve of my departure, and I said to Lenny, what am I doing? I've got three young kids. What am I doing? He said, you're going to be fine. you got to go. You're going to be fine. Well, I'm here. No worries. By the way, first of all, I had only met Lenny momentarily at the book launch, and I got a sense of that, just how wonderful he is. But as you said before, it wasn't all housewives 
but behind every housewife was a Lenny. And, and what a privilege that you got to share about him as well. Uh, and, and again, it's in the book. So folks are going to read it. I, I, we could go on forever. I just want to wrap up. Um, Pam, it's very rare that I get excited or emotional about a book, much less feel compelled to thank the author. But I really do thank you, not just for writing it and writing it in the first person as you did. Um, you, you documented a really, really critical moment and period in Jewish history. But you also, and I, and I don't know that you knew it at the time, but you were enabling people like me to come along in your wake and to play our role. And sometimes I refer to myself as a comma on the page of Jewish history. And if it's only that, I'm okay with that. Um, but it was, I know you said you stood on the shoulders of people like Marilyn and others who came before you and I on yours. And, and for all those reasons, thank you. And I, and I really encourage people to get the book and read it and maybe we can have another conversation. And I just say one thing about the, uh, about the availability. I just want um, your listeners to know that right now, I think Amazon has been sold out, wow. but, but we have, um, we've, we've made it, we're making an arrangement with them that they will be um, printing um, and making available paperback books. Great. So, and that should be, you know, in the nearest future. So if you, you know, put in your orders uh, and, uh, keep keep an eye out on, on Amazon. We are, and then we are coming out with another uh, hardbound edition, but that that'll take several months. That's so exciting to hear that it's already sold out. I'm thrilled to to know that. Um, Pam, it's been a delight. Thank you, thank you for for joining us today for everything for you and everything that you do. It's been thank, a delight. Thank you, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. Enjoyed it too. Me too. While we're while we're doing thanks, I want to acknowledge uh, that the podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. And I always want to say that if you're in the area and need something that somebody needs from a greenhouse, go in and get it from them. And if you don't and you've just enjoyed this program, go and give them a hug and thank them for, for making this possible. And also to our friends, the Coin family, for their meaningful sponsorship as well. Um, inspiration from Zion and the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are all made possible by donations. So I invite everyone to please consider joining us to help continue dialogues like this and to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel. If you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or in memory of a loved one or a special occasion, or just have questions, please be in touch at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We would love to hear questions comments uh, and dialogue about uh, about your feedback on this and other episodes, and especially questions you have about Judaism for our ongoing Ask the Rabbi programs. Um, please do share this with others who will find it of interest and continue to join us right here at the Charisma Podcast Network or anywhere that you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and other places where I hope we can continue to bring you meaningful conversations about unique topics in and related to Israel that hopefully you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings from right here in the Judean mountains. God bless you.